Hello, you're listening to Pod Academy. The Potential Difference Podcast with me, Dr. Radu Spore. Today, academic research commercialization. The Impact Acceleration Account, or IAA, follows from the University of Surrey's Successful Knowledge Transfer Account, or KTA, and is funded by EPSRC, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. The Surrey IAA aims to accelerate the process of research exploitation by delivering an innovative program of activities that will significantly enhance the research and impact of past, current, and future EPSRC-funded research beyond established exploitation routes. Today, at a showcase event, I'm talking to some of the researchers who are taking part. Hi, I'm Matthew Casey, Managing Director of Pervasive Intelligence Limited, and I'm working with the University of Surrey on an impact accelerator project looking at augmented reality in museums. We have uh, an Android application which enables museums to augment any exhibition they might want. So, for example, at the recent Renoir in Britain exhibition at the Lightbox in Woking, we uh, had images of all the Renoir images on display, which we augmented with audio, uh, some video, um, different text, links to uh, different um, art galleries, so that when visitors went around, they could use the uh, smartphone to actually look at the uh, paintings and find out further information. We provide different layers of information. So, for example, if you're just interested in perhaps who the model was in the painting, if you're actually interested in the different periods of Renoir's work, so, for example, if his different um, uh, styles and that he developed over his time or portraiture or whatever it might be, then you can look at that information. So what you get is a very non-linear, um, individual tour if that's what you're used to, of a, an exhibition, but you're self-guided. You can pick and choose what you want. Um, what it really enables is museums to do uh, a very low-cost um, approach to deploying digital to their exhibitions, which they look after the content. It's content they've already got. Um, when we recognise a particular uh, image on the wall, uh, we're tracking what the, the user is looking at what they're actually seeing so we know where they are effectively by what they're, they're tracking we know what content they're looking at and that's squirted back to a server so that the museum can then learn a lot more about um, what their visitors are looking at what they're interested in perhaps because they want to change the exhibition to make it better or um, record visitor flow or what they call um, dwell time how long they've spent which ultimately leads to um, commercial interest because the longer a visitor stays in an exhibition the more money they spend this is a seamless experience for the person for, for the visitor mm-hmm. because all you need is their device yeah. um, and your app yeah. and then it's just a matter of pointing the thing at the particular object and yeah. that's it I think that's very clever thanks very much I'm Tom Mee from Chemical Engineering and I'm for the past four years I've been working on the Malthus program a tool for NHS commissioners that is aimed to uh, help them with cancer radiotherapy demand planning Historically in the NHS, the demand planning hasn't really been so good and they've only really had a single England-wide model that doesn't take into account local variations for cancer instances. The Malthus programme has created a model that does England-wide and also regional models. So a clinical commissioner can look at this tool that we've made and say, OK, let's see how much radiotherapy I should be providing in my catchment area and then they can press a couple of nice little buttons, saves them doing any calculations. We've got all the populations, population prediction models in here, as well as all the uh, 
highest level cancer incidence data from England and cancer prediction models too in here. So they can then just press all these things and it comes out with a nice answer for them to them to enable them to plan their services better than they currently are already planned because England is actually under providing on the amount of radiotherapy make sure their region is then also planning for the future because they can look at it and say okay in 2035 we'll need an extra five linear accelerators because our population is aging we'll see more prevalence of this breast cancer head and neck cancer so we'll need to provide more than we originally planned we would the uh, complicated bit we're solving is the fact that Clinicians around the country won't prescribe the same amount of radiotherapy for a cancer. What we managed to do was, based on the best evidence currently out in literature, we also managed to get clinicians from around the whole country to get together for a day to discuss these clinical decision trees, we shall call them, where um, where we've managed to map over 2,000 separate clinical decisions that we've got plugged into the model, and we got them to agree on it, even if they were saying... Ideally, we would give this amount of radiotherapy. We can't because of our infrastructure, but we could if we had the infrastructure. And so really our core clinical trees are of the highest quality that we could possibly make them that really enables us to to say, okay, this is the answer for the amount of radiotherapy you should be giving. And we're confident because we know the incidence data is correct from the cancer registries. We know the population data is correct from the ONS. And now we also know the clinical decisions are correct because they come from you guys. This sounds very encouraging for the patients, but also for the system itself, because you can greatly improve the efficiency. Thanks very much for this. No problem at all. I'm Afan Chokat from the Surrey Space Centre. I'm a research fellow working on autonomous systems. We are showing here a micro-rover testbed that we use for emulating our um, space application, autonomous application, software applications, as well as hardware capabilities as well. Um, so what we have here is this micro-rover Uh, It has the stereo camera, it has a monocular camera, plus it has LIDAR, which stands for light detection and ranging, or laser detection and ranging. Uh, These are used for simultaneous localization and mapping, uh, which basically uh, makes a rover capable of localizing itself to its its surroundings, also navigating it autonomously, um, and plus mapping its environment. Say, for instance, if there are high-risk objects such as large rock boulders and obstacles like that. Why do we need these autonomous sensors and autonomous uh, softwares? Because this is meant for space and there's a lot of communication latency in space. So you really cannot teleoperate these. You want to equip it with the hardware capabilities which can provide it with a perception of the environment so it enables it to navigate safely and, of course, um, perform activities that are a part of its mission. The next step is, of course, to increase the range of mapping because using stereo cameras is only limited to about 5 metres maximum. Using laser can increase that up to 500 metres or even a kilometre. The problem with that is that you cannot send laser LiDAR technology to space for the time being because it's so much power hungry. You have to keep the power consumption low. I'm standing in front of two tubs, presumably full, full of water, with some coverings on top and light shining on them to simulate sunshine. And it turns out that one of the tubs is about five degrees hotter than the other one. What's this work about? So Plastipak is a company um, fabricating swimming pool covers. And um, currently in the market, you have OPEC cover, 
and opaque cover can inhibit algae growth. Or you can choose for a transparent cover. And uh, with a transparent cover, you may have some algae, but you have a nicer temperature increase, and uh, which is good if you want to swim. And the current project is uh, dealing with developing a new cover, which still inhibits algae growth, but will present um, a higher temperature increase. And uh, hopefully we'll have this product on market very soon. The best of both worlds, you get less algae growth and some temperature increase with this new material that you've, you've made. Thanks very much. You're welcome. My name is Vito Dasostromskas and I'm from the physics department. I'm representing the outreach office here. And SEPNET outreach is a, it's a quite a wide program and it's uh, in collaboration with other uh, eight universities. And so we're kind of... And for the outreach, we go to schools and talk to kids age, I think, from eight till eight levels, and promote basically science, uh, science careers and careers days and science fairs and science days and festivals and etc. And I, I consider myself as an active outreach officer, so I like to go just to schools, you know, just talking to kids, kind of sing, and kind of you know, uh, clearing a bit of mist about what what scientists is being like, and because I think in media is kind of really showing us to be you know a bit of kind of grim people and you know very dull and kind of working the same thing in like in a cave and you know, that kind of thing. And I think when kind of, when they see them, you know, it's another normal person talking to you and being excited about the research, they usually realize, ah, those people are actually cool, you know, they you know, they they love what they're doing. So basically, I try to sell science as freedom. That's a good way of putting it. What are we looking at on on your table? Um, so basically, here I have uh, three different uh, la- gas lamps. One of them is uh, three different, uh, basically gases, and so obviously. And, and the idea is using uh, diffraction gl- uh, gl- uh, glasses, you can identify what uh, what gases in the lamps. Right, because you will see the uh, like a light spectrum, so from red to blue, and you can see the uh, discrete lines appearing. That will tell you what what you know what gas it is. And so, so the idea behind this is kind of to show that when we go to schools, we also bring ex- you know some sort of these experiments or things to show to kind of also uh, allow kids to associate science with you know some cool stuff, you know, some experiments or something they can see, they can touch, they can, you know, feel. And I think they, that just increases the excitement like, to another level. Thanks very much. No problem at all. My pleasure. My name is Dr. Juan Sagaceta. I'm a lecturer in structural engineering. In, and, uh, well, today I'm presenting some of the results for the project uh, on progressive collapse of concrete structures. This project looks at improving uh, building regulations on robustness, basically. So uh, if there's any accidental action, such as an earthquake or a fire or a car hitting a column and it has a local failure of the, of the structure, um, then you can design the structure to take that damage and either isolate it and make sure it doesn't propagate to the rest of the structure. So we, are developing, we have developed a theoretical approach, which we are comparing with some numerical computer simulations. And hopefully this will improve the sign codes uh, and uh, uh, avoid these progressive collapses. And the applications are for general infrastructure, so uh, buildings, bridges, tunnels, um, industrial facilities. The theoretical model that we have developed, which is based on first principles, so uh, dynamics and physics and fracture mechanics, uh, we will implement this in uh, some of the complex computer softwares, which take into account this into a more complex system. So a structure has many nodes, many elements. So to, c- to consider all of them, we will implement this in a software called Dyna. We, we will apply this to real situation of damages. Um, so we will take, we have taken a few examples of bi- real buildings designed 
particular regulations and we have subjected them to some specific damages and then we see how it propagates. We are speaking to Samantha Simons. I'm a PhD student in medical um, engineering. Uh, my PhD is on signal processing. Specifically, I'm looking at brain signals, so EEGs, of Alzheimer's patients. And today I've got a headset that you can buy commercially for gaming and I'm showing how you can use that to control something that's controlled by a computer. So we're going to be looking at how you might be able to control a wheelchair, not by moving a, a joystick, but by thinking thoughts like, um, I'm stroking a cat, I'm doing a maths equation, and actually using that to make, make something go forwards, backwards, left, right, turn, that sort of thing. This is just a demonstration piece, so this is commercially available software, but we can do quite a bit with this if we had enough time to really train up anyone using the headset. But we use this to demonstrate signal processing to students at school, to um, prospective students here, because many people have heard a lot about interfaces between the brain and the computer, but not really experienced it before. And it's a really good test bed for them to experience both the positives and the problems we have with this sort of software. I'm Steve Schneider, and we've got a system here that does um, secure electronic voting. So I'm here with my colleague, Chris Culnane, and the, the two of us are, are running this particular demonstration. The idea of the system is to provide electronic voting in a way that also gives verifiability of the vote. So when you cast your vote, you actually get a receipt that somehow is cryptographically encodes your vote so that nobody can tell how you actually voted, and yet you can check that your vote has gone into the system and has been processed correctly. The particular aspect of this ballot form is that the names are printed in a random order, so different ballot forms will have the names in different random orders. So when you mark your X's against those names, once the names are removed and you're just left with the positions of the X's, you no longer know what that vote was for. So the receipt that you take away shows where your X's were, where your markings were, but doesn't give away who you voted for because it could have been against any list of names. You can then check that, your, that the vote that you cast has, um, has been processed correctly. We're involved in the, um, the Victorian state election in Australia, uh, which is taking place in November this, this year, so in two months' time. So our system is actually being used to take real votes um, during the early voting phase, so they vote for two weeks before the actual polling day, they can accept votes, and, and it will be running during that time also remotely, so there will be one in the embassy in London for Australians who are in the UK to be able to go and cast a vote um, electronically and have it fed into the system. So yes, very much, um, very much going live very soon. These were just a few of the projects which are part of Surrey's Impact Acceleration account. As usual, what's striking is the sheer variety of projects and the ingenious solutions that our researchers find to practical problems. I've been Radus Bora, Royal Academy of Engineering Research Fellow at the University of Surrey. This was a special episode of the Potential Difference podcast.